Alright, we are back with only about 9 or 10 minutes to use. I hope that narrative was useful to you, dear listener, to explain how this case has gone back and forth for 50 years. Let's talk about what people had to say last week in Pennsylvania. Let's start with our Pennsylvania political correspondent, Jerry Polikoff, which is what we designated him at one point. In the discussion on the media, Jerry referred to a wonderful piece which you have not read you need to do, dear listener. It was Carl Bernstein's article that I think was in Rolling Stone, titled The CIA and the Media. You can find this on the web, I'm sure, and if you've not read it, like I say, you need to. Jerry praised a lot of good work that's been done over the years, including that of Earl Goltz, who was one of the few reporters down in Dallas that dug into the case and found some interesting things. He was rewarded by his editor taking him aside and scolding him and asking him to uh, set aside what he was doing and devote his energy to things that were more productive. And Jefferson Morley, himself a first-class reporter, formerly of the Washington Post. I mean, I was amazed to see a piece about JFK in Reader's Digest a decade ago, written by Jeff Morley. It raised some valid questions about, uh, about official findings. I got you, I'm really looking forward to getting uh, Jefferson Morley back on this program. But uh, he told the audience that he was at one point taken aside by the people at the Washington Post and told, you know, Jeff, this isn't good for your career. Morley noted that he was able to get some JFK pieces in the Washington Post, and he was not censored. And there was, in fact, a normal editorial debate about the pieces. But that, um, well, the Post just wasn't comfortable with the subject. It was clear when he was in the newsroom that the JFK topic was not considered a normal story. And the way he summarized it was that, well, the the Washington Post culture was just risk-adverse. It was not entrepreneurial. For his part, Russ Baker noted that he just got back from a conference in Rio. And when speaking with foreign journalists about his interest in the JFK case, uh, well, it was treated like any other story when talking to foreigners. When he was talking to domestic reporters, they just basically asked, well, you conspiracy theorist. Which, of course, is the same thing as asking, are you crazy? David Talbot talked about how he decided to found his own uh, uh, source for news, Salon.com on the web, because he was frustrated by uh, traditional media. But he has noted that he's spoken with people who are movers and shakers in the business about the JFK case and got some surprising answers. Don Hewitt, the the mastermind of, of 60 Minutes, told Talbot at one point, well, yeah, we know it was a conspiracy, but we just couldn't quite put it together. Talbot suggested that even though you might not be able to solve the case, wouldn't it have been worthwhile to have aired some, uh, some various aspects of what they were investigating? When it was Oliver Stone's time to speak, he decried the fact that there were no young people there. There were, but not very many. And he compared people interested in what happened to John F. Kennedy to abolitionists, people whose passion scared others. Perhaps feeling a bit vindicated, he talked about what Dr. Robert McClellan had told the general audience earlier in the conference. By way of video conferencing from Dallas, Dr. McClellan described what it had been like to treat the stricken president back in 1963. Dr. McClellan refuses to let words be put into his mouth, but clearly when he describes the nature of the injuries to the president, he's describing an injury that is far and away most consistent with having been shot from the front. I was struck by one moron uh, in the audience putting the question to McClellan as to whether, you know, what he had to say to people that said, well, he didn't have a very good view of the president's wounds and and he wasn't really paying that close of attention. McClellan looked surprised and sort of addressed the camera and said, well, no, actually, I had a very, very good view of the president's injuries from about 18 inches away. As far as paying attention goes, I would say I paid more attention to that than anything else I ever have in my life. And doggone it, how much time we got left, Mr. McMillan? 
five minutes. Well, we told you at the onset this was an impossible task. It has been, but we got five minutes left. Let's, let's keep talking about things. We've talked in this show about how Earl Warren has a deservedly stellar reputation as a governor of California and, and later as Supreme Court Justice. Mark Lane, in his talk, uh, pointed out how he's often been asked how it is that Earl Warren could have signed on to a cover-up. Well, his explanation is, and it's entirely credible, that Warren was advised that uh, if there wasn't a cover-up here, we were going to have World War III. A lot of people have pointed out the clear trail that seemed to have been uh, constructed around Oswald, pointing to uh, his so-called communist background, and we could do a whole show on that in the next few weeks, and we probably will. But it's worthy of note that uh, Warren was asked by a reporter early on in the investigation, something like January of 1964, about the case, and he said, you will never get the full story in our lifetime. Which is a pretty uh, frank admission from a guy that was about to put together a big whitewash. I was intrigued by the talks given by uh, local boys, Dr. Josiah Thompson and Dr. Gary Aguilar. It's my belief that uh, they have made a um, pretty good case for the fact that the president was evidently struck twice, fatally, within one second. Bam, bam. Thompson revealed how, when working for Life magazine back in 1967, he did what the FBI should have done, which was make measurements on the president's body when he was being struck by bullets. He concluded, erroneously, he notes, that under the impact of the fatal shot, he was driven forward momentarily before being driven backward. He now realizes that that is an illusion. Thompson's analysis back in 1967 was considered so good that it was universally accepted by people that uh, thought Oswald did it and by conspiracy-minded people alike. Thompson, in the meantime, to his utter credit, has reviewed the matter and concluded that he was wrong. After getting two-thirds of the way through his lecture, he stopped and said, now I will bring up Keith Fitzgerald, an independent researcher who's correctly deduced what happens. Fitzgerald took the dace and made a very compelling explanation for the fact that although the president is indeed knocked back and to the left, as you saw in Oliver Stone's movie, after that, there's an abrupt movement forward, something that was seen by a lot of witnesses and appreciated at the time. Thompson thought Kennedy was hit twice, first from the rear, then from the front. On further examination, he's now convinced that Kennedy was hit twice, first from the front, from the grassy knoll shot, which matches perfectly with the acoustics evidence then a split second later from the rear. All I can say to your listeners, we run out of time, is that we'll be talking about a lot of these subjects again in the next few weeks. I hope that today served as a, a foundation for what's going to follow. In closing, I am grateful for the fact that Dan Hardaway did show up uh, to this conference. He's been missing in action for most uh, previous events. I was struck by the fact that he described how he was only a second-year law student, and so was Eddie Lopez when they were hired by the House Select Committee. He noted to my surprise, and I think the surprise of the audience, that at first he said they were given full cooperation by the Central Intelligence Agency, who perhaps figured, you know, what do they have to fear from a couple of young law students? But when they started making headway in these, uh, in these documents they were suggesting and the CIA was pulling up, things changed. Toward the end, if he wanted to uh, look at a document, he had to do so at CIA headquarters and was not allowed to make notes he could leave the building with. He could only leave with the notes that he carried in his head. He made a list at one point of who he thought were the most interesting people to examine as regards to being the perpetrators in the assassination. He had to discuss that in CIA headquarters using notepads that he would then leave with the Central Intelligence Agency. Robert Blakey, the head of the House Select Committee, was also not allowed to take any paperwork away. 
So during a break, I went up to Hardaway along with Gary Aguilar and said, Dan, I got to ask you, if I'd been in that room with you and Robert Blakey at the CIA back then, what names would have been on the list? He said the main guy we had was William Harvey. Regrettably, I think we're out of time, but the names William Harvey of the CIA, David Atlee Phillips of the CIA, and America's master spook himself, Alan Dulles of the CIA, are names we will be talking about in the weeks to come. As we close, the punchline I would serve up for future discussions here is that the case was a conspiracy, and the conspirators all seem to tie back to the Central Intelligence Agency. That's just the way it looks 50 years on. Were there mobsters involved? Well, yeah, peripherally. Trouble is, they all seem to have connections to the CIA themselves. We're going to have to leave it there. We will have a more normal show, I think, on next week's program, although, we're continue, although we are going to continue to talk about this very topic. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. In the weeks to come, we'll be bringing to this program some of the participants in that conference back in Pennsylvania, and I'm very much looking forward to doing that. We'll see you then.